Let's pray. God, as we open your word, I thank you for the blessing of your sufficient revelation that you've graciously given us. I pray, oh God, today our hearts would be stirred. I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would see our need of the gospel of Jesus, the good news that you've given us. And I pray you'd be glorified. I pray you'd help me in my weakness. I pray you'd be my strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles, if you turn to 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33, I talked to many of you this last week about how the story of Manasseh really compelled you. What a story of God's grace. And I want to I stay around one more week with this storyline. And uh, the title of the message this morning is Redemptive Lessons in the Life of Manasseh. Redemptive Lessons in the Life of Manasseh. As we were looking at 2 Kings and the story of King Manasseh, we, we saw his tragic life of idolatry, and we saw how when he was running after his own way, he was deceived in his heart, deceived about who God was, deceived about the blessing of his truth, deceived about all of reality. But we saw not only did his idolatry deceive his heart, it, it led others astray. He seduced them. He led them. He, he acted in such a way as a hindrance to them. He was a stumbling block to the people that he was called to lead. It's the idea of to whom much is given, much is required. And as a leader of the nation, his life was an obstacle for them following God. But the third area that we saw about his idolatry was that he reaped sorrowful judgment. I was looking at the list of the observations you can pull from 2 Kings and, I mean, all the things you can think of. He, he did all the despicable practices of the nations around them. He rebuilt the high places, the exalted altars of Baal. He made Asherah. He worshiped the stars. He built altars in the house of the Lord. It, it reminds you of the abominations of desolation that you think about when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, a guy that was in the intertestamental period of time in history, that 400-year period of silence before Christ, he came in, he desecrated the temple. We often think about that abomination in the temple, but we sometimes forget about Manasseh's abomination. I mean, this is the height of blasphemy. We realize this, don't we? This is taking the pure, holy temple of God and bringing in idolatry. And yet we see that rather than him being finished, there's still hope of the grace of God. We see that he built altars for the host of heaven in the courts of the Lord, fortune-telling. He dealt with mediums, necromancers. He was seeking to communicate with dead spirits. He did much evil, provoked God to anger, carved the image of the Asherah, set it in the house of the Lord, shed innocent blood, and yet we see God's grace supersede his idolatry, and it gives hope to everyone in this room. It gives hope that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It gives us hope because as we look at the character of Almighty God, while learning about his judgment, we see revealed his grace. We see his sweet mercy. We see the abundance of 
of grace to the hopeless. And this is what happens with Manasseh. This morning, five realities about salvation we learn from Manasseh. Five realities about salvation we learn from King Manasseh. And we could give more, but these are five that really jumped off the page at me. Number one, God's grace graciously gets our attention. God's grace graciously gets our attention. If you're in 2 Chronicles 33, look at verse 10. And I love how this sets up this passage. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. And God has a way of intervening graciously in his saving purposes. I tell you, one of the things that happens when you gather as a church body, you know, the church is a gathering of the redeemed. And when we gather as the redeemed, we always want to proclaim the gospel because there's, we pray there's people that come in and we can share the good news of salvation to them and they can hear it and respond by grace through faith. But in the, re, in the context of what the church is, we come together and we say, one of the sweet realities of the church is that we can say, okay, look at God's grace intervening in the life of Manasseh. And we could go around the room and say, and how sweet to declare how God's grace has intervened in our life. Because there's a therefore in verse 11, in midst of his rebellion, in midst of being completely unwilling to hear. Have you ever been in a room with uh, four and five-year-olds and tried to talk to them? Some, some listen, but I'm talking about not the exception, but the rule here. And uh, I've been in situations with little ones where you're talking and no one's looking at you and no one's listening. And, and you're thinking, there is no way I could get their attention. Nothing would get their attention. I want you to think about that in terms of a spiritual way. The king of, his, the king of Judah is completely disobedient from God's ways, and yet God's grace intervenes. And I want us to think about this. When we look at the life of Manasseh and we see how God graciously got his attention, we're reminded of how God works in our salvation. We look at this from the new covenant. We look back, and we're going to look at this a little bit later. There's so many similarities, but there's differences. We live under the new covenant. We live, we live in a day post-Pentecost. And while the Holy Spirit had to be upon the Old Testament believers in regeneration for them to come to salvation, we see a unique difference in the quality of the manifestation of the Spirit in the life of the New Covenant Christian. We see this reality of the fullness of the promise of all that Jeremiah 31 promised, of all Ezekiel 36 promised. And so when we look at this, I want us to be encouraged because I want you to go, okay, what we observe in the life of Manasseh, I want you to ask yourself, how do we see this similarity even greater lived out in the life of the Christian? We see, first of all, he gets his attention. And I thought about this. There's so many wonderful examples. When you go through this idea of paid no attention, the word means they did not listen carefully. They did not give heed to the word. They did not obey. Jeremiah paints the problem here in Jeremiah 6.10. 
He to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Yet we see this, this miracle that God has the ability and the power to take those who pay no attention and bring them to the place where they now pay attention. I think about so many fun examples here. Paul on the road to Damascus. And I love how in Acts chapter 9 on verse 3, it says, Now as he went on his way, no desire for the things of God. No desire for the Jesus of the early Christians. But what happened? God intervened. You see, a lot of people think that the way that salvation works is that human beings um, intellectually or through life experiences come to a better understanding of life and therefore see a realization inwardly of their need of spiritual things. But the problem is, is that we're dead in our sins. The problem is we're enemies of God. The problem is we're ignorant of the truth. And people that are ignorant of the truth don't come to some unique understanding on their own. The only explanation for grace impacting someone to pay attention is the intervention of God through the power of his spirit. And what happened to Paul? God intervened and appeared to him. And what took place? We see this amazing change in Paul where he goes from paying no attention to Jesus of Nazareth to now being submitted to him fully. We see it with Lydia. Lydia is in Acts chapter 16. And jumping in verse 14, I love this because it reminds me of the passage we're in. It says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Here's a woman that didn't have the ability to pay attention on her own, but God's grace intervened. He intervened in such a way that Lydia became a worshiper of God. When we go through this, I was thinking about different examples of testimonies that you hear of if we went, I love hearing uh, when people join the church and they share their testimony um, with me. It's always such a joy because regardless of the, the situation, they're giving me the account of when God brought them to attention, when God brought them to his saving grace. I, I told you about a guy, uh, I was reading a book on discipleship by a fellow named J.T. English and his story captivated me. I loved it. Just a simple story, but a profound story. He, he was a freshman in college. He was invited to a Bible study. He, the, they were doing a study on Jonah, and he was really sort of uh, panicking. He couldn't find Jonah, and he didn't understand if his Bible included the book of Jonah or not. And as he, as he was sitting there, he, he was explaining in the book how he felt so anxious, and somebody next to him helped him find where Jonah was. And then there was this awkward uh, fella that was not real impressive, not a good communicator, but he was a part of this group that was being trained as how to reach out to, to freshmen in college to share the gospel. And he invited him to a lunch. And the guy went to a lunch with this fella. And they sit down and imagine this. They sit down across the table from each other. And the guy pulls out his pamphlet and starts reading to him 
And immediately, it was the, he said that, believe it or not, he said he was captivated by it. He said he was captivated by everything because he was shocked that God's grace extended to sinners. And when the fellow was telling him about God's grace and what he had learned in the Bible study and how he was talking it out, he was moved dramatically. And lo and behold, this, to this fellow's dismay that was reading the pamphlet, English became a believer in Christ. Why? Because it's not up to freshman evangelists to captivate the hearts of sinners. It's up to human, human evangelists to sow the seed because God's the one who can captivate the heart. And God worked through the inability. I, I told you the story of, uh, of Spurgeon when he was an unbeliever, yet God was working in his heart. And it was a, it was a morning that he was headed to church and it was a snowstorm, and he was going down a street, and he couldn't see anymore, and he couldn't keep walking, and he went into a little bitty place with 10 to 15 people at the church. It was a primitive Methodist chapel, and that morning, as he sat there, this man who was very unimpressive, as he said, a man that... Uh, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort went up into the pulpit to preach he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. I'm obviously reading here. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. And he reads out of Isaiah where the text says, look unto me. And the young preacher starts calling on people to look to Christ. And there, as he compelled people to look into Christ, Spurgeon's heart was strangely warmed, and Spurgeon trusted in Christ. How do we get to a place where our lack of attention moves to being attentive? It's through the grace and the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what happens with Manasseh. You see, Manasseh, the Holy Spirit comes upon kings. He comes upon prophets. He comes upon people. And when you see a person in the Old Testament come to a saving understanding of who God is, looking to the promises that God reveals in the Old Testament, it's not because of their own intuitive ability. It's not because of their own understanding. It's because God is working. I read another story about a man who was in... Folsom State Prison, he was in solitary confinement, second degree murder, 52 counts of armed robbery, and this little lady was on chapel ministry, and she wanted to talk to him through the opening, and the guard, the prison guard mocked her, basically like, you don't want to talk to this guy. She shared Christ with him through a strange, unique, mysterious intervention in his life. He trusted Jesus Christ became a chaplain himself in his time in prison. God uniquely gets our attention. But not only does God graciously get our attention, number two, you have to be humbled before you can be healed. You have to be humbled before you can be healed. When we look at the life of Manasseh, we see that God intervened and changed his lack of attention to a place of attentiveness before a holy God. But not only do we notice that observation, we see the principle that Manasseh had to be humbled before he could understand who God was and before he could experience God's cleansing. 
And we read there in 2 Chronicles 33, verse 12. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Have you been humbled? Have you seen your brokenness? I'll tell you, there's hope for the brokenhearted. There's hope for the weary. Uh, if, you're, if you're with me today, and what I mean by that is you're listening and you're inclined and your heart is moved, I want you to be encouraged. If you feel this overwhelming sense of weariness and need because of your condition, I've got amazing news for you. There's hope for you. There's hope for you. Look to Christ. And we see an example of it here with Manasseh. God brought him to a place of desperation, and it humbled him. And what did it take for Manasseh? It took the Assyrians coming down on him. It took him being carried away with a hook. It took him being taken to Babylon, and God broke this man. And God revealed to him his need. Again, testimonies would abound with the message of a place in your life when God puts you in a place of brokenness. And I say this to you to encourage you because it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But if you're with us today and you've never been at a place in your life where you've been humbled to see your need of Christ, today is the day of salvation for you. Look to Christ. Look to Christ, because one of the realities of the Holy Spirit is he'll use examples scripturally of this truth to reveal it to someone inwardly, to help them see they're no different than Manasseh. They need a savior. They need the Lord God. And he calls upon the Lord. It humbles him. You remember when Jesus was talking in Luke 18, and it's about the, the tax collector and the Pharisee, and it says in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's the predicament. The predicament is if you've got church-going people who trust in themselves that they are righteous. And it might even be that the very act of going to church is one of the reasons they trust in themselves that they are righteous. Makes sense? It's like the, the predicament of humanity is this desire to self-earn, to self-produce. It's why the gospel of grace is so offensive, because it says, no, it's by God's grace that you're saved through Christ and that not of yourselves. Just as Naaman was brought to leprosy, and it led him to his sense of his need. God often uses the temporal issues of life, the temporary, to reveal spiritual realities, to bring us to a place, as James 4.10 says, of humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. To come to the conclusion of the tax collector, where he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, Realizing his need and calling out for the goodness of Christ. This is all through the Bible. Years ago, I was going to the city jail, and uh, a book that really helped me was by John Stott. And, and one book 
he, he speaks about these realities, how over and over in the Gospels, Jesus uses the physical to illustrate the spiritual. I'll give you some examples. I'll give you three examples from Stott. He says Jesus took the feeding of the 5,000 to show his satisfying of the hunger of the human heart. He feeds the 5,000, and then he relates to them, I am the bread of life. You see, they had a physical hunger, and Jesus was revealing to them in their physical hunger a greater hunger, a greater need. He goes on and he talks about how when Jesus healed the man who had been born blind, but then what, is he, what did he just say before that? He told the people, I am the light of the world. But what did he do? He, he took someone's human need, their physical need, to illustrate something greater. He needs eyes to see physically, but I'm the only one who can open up light in your life. But then what do we see? He does the miraculous miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead, and he immediately reveals to the people, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is what we see here. When we look at Manasseh, God took him to the end of himself, and he did it in a physical circumstance. He did it in a place where he understood he wasn't in control. He was a captive, and he gave him a greater illustration of his need in his spiritual realm. Not only does God graciously get our attention, we see it with Manasseh. The second, you have to be humble before you can be healed. The third reality here that we see, all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. All who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. It says in verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 33, notice how he calls upon the Lord. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. He calls out on the name of the Lord and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. We see with Manasseh, he called on God. God heard him. And that's what we see throughout the entire scripture. Romans 10 verses 8 through 10. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You remember in Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. All the way through here, what do you see? And you see this beautiful truth that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That if we call upon him, Psalm 86 for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Tommy read it earlier. Did you catch what the next verse was? Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Psalm 145, 18. This gives us all hope. The Lord is near to all who call on him to all who call on him in truth. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians. This blessed me like crazy. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. This morning, if you're not a believer and you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this applies to you. When I was with those precious pastors in Romania and we opened up 2 Peter, it was such a joy. They love the Lord. Their hearts are hungry for God's word. And we were studying how he says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everyone in the body of Christ has this in common. They have called upon the name of the Lord, and he has been faithful. Today, if you are thinking, man, you don't know, I relate more to Manasseh and his, and those, his idolatry. I pray today you would see that by God's grace, you can relate to him in this wonderful grace. A grace that God gives to those who call upon him. A grace for the brokenhearted. A grace for the weary. A grace for the unable. A grace for the distraught. A grace for the beat up. A grace for those who come to a place of realizing there is nothing within themselves that merits anything, and they need the grace of another. And when the scripture tells us the grace of another is the sinless substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see, I love John chapter 6, and in that passage, you see such beautiful themes as God's sovereignty, his election. But then you see this promise, even in that, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, never cast out those who call upon the name of the Lord. Number four, not only does God graciously get our attention, we see it with Manasseh, we also see you have to be humbled before you can be healed. We see in the life of Manasseh a redemptive picture, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then number four, conversion brings true knowledge. Conversion brings true knowledge. Listen to verse 13. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And biblically, when we see people come to this knowledge, the explanation, again, is not intellectual. It's not human ability. It's the grace of the Lord. And we see a more fulfilled picture of this knowledge in the New Testament under the new covenant. And this is the grace of God that Manasseh didn't have any knowledge. He had so much knowledge. He had a knowledge, theoretical knowledge. He knew what he was supposed to do. He knew the commandment of God, but he came to a personal knowledge. What happened? The Lord worked. And, and what happens here is we see one illustration of this, 1 John chapter 2. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Wow. God does a work in our heart. 
we become aware of the things of God, what is the explanation? It's a work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to this saving knowledge of Christ and brings us a knowledge into the things of God. We see this in, in 2 Peter over and over and over. And when he speaks about all the manifestations of God's grace, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. There's a knowledge that they grew in, a knowledge that we have in Christ Jesus. We know because we know. I told you there, there's one word, there's a knowledge in the Bible that speaks of like this growing knowledge. It's like a, a knowledge of participation. Remember Paul when he says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. He knew Christ, but there was this growing knowledge. But there's also a knowledge of intuition. It's the not, I think of intuitive knowledge when moms know things and there's no explanation as to how they know them. Isn't that crazy? I remember growing up, it'd be like, mom would be like, she'd call me out on something. It's like, how do you know? She's like, I just know. I was like, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> mom knows. She had this intuitive knowledge of my friends. And you know what's crazy? Like growing up, I, I look back and the ones that she wouldn't let me hang out with that I'd get so mad about. I look back and I was like, mom, how'd you know? And she'd be like, I just knew. I just knew. And you know what? There's a similar reality into the people of God who come into salvation and now they understand things. They can't really explain why they know anymore. I mean, they know it and they don't know why they've come to this other than this type of knowledge. And Manasseh is changed by the grace of God. It changes his attention it changes his perspective, gives him a new knowledge. So we see God graciously gets our attention. We see in Manasseh's life, you have to be humbled before you can be healed spiritually. We see that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We see that conversion brings true knowledge. And the final one I want to look at with you this morning where there is a true root, there will be fruit. And what do we see that he does? This is amazing. Look at the positives we see that take place as a result of God working in his life. And remember, as we look at it, that this is just a picture of the reality of the new covenant believer. In verse 14, afterward, he built, he starts out and he, he does these, these, these prudent he makes these prudent decisions for, it, for, the, for Judah that reveal something there. We see this idea of prosperity in the Hebrew. And one aspect of the word means that to act prudently, that God gives wisdom to leaders who seek him. And I, and I think one of the realities of verse 14 is it shows that he's acting in leadership, but it's a picture of the wisdom that God has given him. But then in verse 15, he removed idols that he had built. He threw them outside the city. Have you ever lived in a neighborhood where somebody just never cuts their grass and it just starts getting wild? You know, you're like, I understand for getting a couple of weeks and, you know, everybody's missed a month and it looks a little embarrassing. But I'm talking about the one that's like a year and a half not cut where it's just like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, where a bush just overtakes the house. And, and, and you're thinking, but then have you ever noticed how real estate takes place and you got a for sale sign? 
And then one day you drive by that house and all of a sudden the yard looks good. What are you thinking? Whoa, something's changed. And what's the reality? What changed? Ownership changed in the house. Same house, ownership changed. The life of a Christian, what changes? They go from being in Adam to being in Christ, but the reality of a new owner in town changes everything. Manasseh is a different man. His house was unkept. His house went through a change, and now the yard looks different. And what's happening? He's restoring the altar of the Lord. And I love this right here. He offered sacrifices of peace offerings and thanksgiving. You know what a peace offering was? A peace offering was given as the worshiper was saying, thank you for God's grace. I love this. He, he wanted to praise God for his goodness. Part of the peace offerings were the offerings of thanksgiving. They go together. It's a thank you. It, it reminded me, do you, do, you, you know, do you come to church? Do you read the Bible? Do you engage in spiritual activities to earn God's favor? Or are they done because of God's favor? where your life now becomes lived out of generosity, out of love towards God because of the saving grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he commanded Judah to serve the Lord. All these signs of 15, 16, 17 show us the reality that, that there was a difference in his life. And, and I want to read you this quote, and I, I fully believe in this reality Jesse Johnson says, the chief weakness of the old covenant is the lack of the spirit indwelling every member of the covenant. The chief reason the disciples had to wait to act on the great commission was to wait to be spirit filled. The chief reason the apostles were witnesses of the dramatic signs and wonders in the Samaritans, John's disciples and Gentiles was so that they would realize that in the new covenant, Every member, regardless of ethnicity, is filled with the same spirit. This is the glory of the new covenant. And friend, we live under the new covenant. And while we look and rejoice in the marks of salvation we see in Manasseh, oh friend, we live looking back at the cross of Jesus Christ. All that was promised has been fulfilled. And we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And, and think about this. God's spirit works within us in a way that would take the ignorant and the, the arrogant and the unwilling and he brings them to a place of obedience. Remember when Peter writes to the dispersed church, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. How is God going to bring people who pay no attention, who are unobedient in lifestyle, how will they come to a place of obedience through the powerful work of the Spirit? We see this over and over. Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruits. In Acts chapter 11, 
You remember this passage where there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And then in verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God. How do you see? It's sort of like uh, you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. And here, what are you looking at? He saw the effects of God's grace. How does a person reveal fruit? Fruit flows out of grace. When you look at Ephesians 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That verse follows, for by grace are you saved through faith. Works flow out of faith. They flow out of the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a reality of a root His spirit lives within us. And now we bear signs of being alive. I told you this a lot, but when I was laying on the highway in Macon, Georgia, when I was 18 years old and flipped like four or five times, when they pulled me out of the car, all I remember is flipping. I was in the car and I could just remember seeing the pavement. And the next thing I remember was I was laying on the side of the road and they were checking my vitals. They wanted to see if I would, there was any signs of life. How does a person show vital signs of spiritual life? Think about that. How do they show vital signs of spiritual life? There has to be life within. And when there's life within through the power of the Holy Spirit, his work in us begins to reveal fruit in our hearts. So what do we see this morning? God's grace graciously gets our attention You have to be humble before you can be healed. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Conversion brings true knowledge. Where there is a true root, there will be fruit. Let me give you some questions as we close. The first one, has God gotten your attention? Is he getting it now? The second one, have you humbled yourself before the Lord? Do you have an experience similar to Manasseh. Are you fighting the very circumstances that God has brought in your life to see your spiritual need? Sometimes people, rather than bow up under the circumstance and be brought to a place of repentance, they get bitter and arrogant in the midst of the circumstances of life Have you called on the name of the Lord to be saved? Have you come to true knowledge in Christ? And finally, are there vital signs of God's work in you? But brothers and sisters, be grateful because the work of God that has happened in Manasseh that we celebrate this morning is the work of God that has taken place in the life of the church. And so today, be thankful. Be thankful for God's work. But today, if you're here, you don't know Christ, I urge you, look to Jesus. Trust in him. Follow the wonderful testimony of Manasseh. Will you bow your head? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these these pictures, these 
these realities that we see true under the new covenant. I pray, oh God, our hearts would be stirred. I pray that we would leave today and similarly to the peace offerings Manasseh brought before you, I pray our hearts would understand the reality of our urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. We thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray.